If you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. This is Mindshock True Crime. You are listening to the John Benet Ramsey series. This is episode two, Dark Logistics. We will be discussing the technical logistics of the crime, the timeline, and lost and forgotten pieces of evidence and eyewitness testimony that have for some reason have fallen by the wayside when they might be the smoking guns to figuring out what happened in this tragic, tragic case of the death of John Benet Ramsey. This is your host, Bruce McGuire. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. And if you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Check the link in the description. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Like our Facebook page. You could also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Patreon. And if you like this video, hit the like button. Feel free to share it across social media platforms. And as always, you can leave your questions, comments, thoughts, and any other cases you want to see covered on Mindshock in the comments section. Okay, so after doing our last episode on John Bonet, do you guys have your prevailing theories, parents, weird Santa Claus people, or intruder of some other kind? What are you thinking? I don't know. I think there's, uh, you know, everybody kind of thinks it's the parents, but or it's Burke. just too like, Burke, yeah, or the brother for him. But it's just, I feel like there's also a possibility that somebody could have actually broken and did something. Oh, there's definitely that possibility. That's what makes it so mysterious. Yeah. Do you remember my theory? Mm, No. The parents thought Burke did it and covered for him when there actually was an intruder that did it. I remember that, yeah. What do you think, Maxwell? Not that I think that that's true. That I'm just I haven't heard that possibility because that would account for the ransom letter being fake because they were trying to cover for their son. But what if it really wasn't their son? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Hmm. And if he's distraught because his sister's or for whatever reason he can't talk or whatever, I mean, maybe they can't get the info or they think he's lying. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why. Maxwell, thoughts? Yeah, I have no idea. You don't have a theory? Uh, no. I mean, you've I seen just, coverage of I the remember. case, right? You've seen interviews with the parents. Um, no. I just remember seeing the kid modeling uh, or something. <laughs> That's all your number for the documentaries? Modeling clips? Um, yeah, and that she and was Beauty pageants and... or whatever. All right, let's... Uh, okay, just to go over the whole case real quick to get back into the groove and so Maxwell can keep up. This is actually a great article called The 20-Year Saga of John Benet Ramsey. It was published March 15, 2016 by Milos Rocker. John Benet Ramsey was found dead in her family home on Christmas in 1996. The case of the dead six-year-old girl captured headlines and attention across the country all over the world. Books, movies, and TV shows have all been made about the case. More than 20 years later, the case continues to mesmerize the public. To learn more about this notorious case and this evolution, read on. Okay, one, the girl. John Benet Ramsey was born in 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia. One year after her birth, John Benet and her family moved to Boulder, Colorado, which is where her father's business computer system company had its headquarters. In Boulder, John Benet's mom entered her daughter in child beauty pageants. In these child beauty pageants, John Benet was very successful. John Benet claimed many pageant victories, including Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, Little Miss Colorado, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. Those titles really accentuate how weird that all is. 
<laughs> Child beauty pageants. But two, the mom, John Benet Ramsey's mom, Patsy Ramsey, was a beauty pageant all star herself. Born in West Virginia, Patsy was named Miss West Virginia one year before her 21st birthday. Three years after her pageant victory, Patsy married John Ramsey. They tied the knot on November 5th, 1980, just as the holiday season kicked off. Seven years later, their first son was born. Three years after that, little John Benet was born. Three, the dad. John Benet Ramsey's dad, John Ramsey, was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. John's dad was a decorated pilot who fought in World War II. Did you guys know that? No, I didn't. After graduating from Michigan State University, John joined the Navy. In 1989, John formed a company that would become part of Access Graphics. And this is something that's not talked about. Access Graphics is actually under the umbrella of Lockheed Corporation. That opens the door to plenty of conspiracy theories, but this isn't the episode for that. In 1996, the computer service conglomerate was raking in over a billion dollars. In 1996, the Boulder Chamber of Commerce named John their Entrepreneur of the Year. What? The family has connections. Entrepreneur of the Year. Wait, Entrepreneur of the Year by who? (laughs) The Boulder Chamber of Commerce, the Mm, city of Boulder, Colorado. So he was like a... Just like doing freelance work for like these companies or for Access Graphics. Because like, what's with the entrepreneur? He formed a company that would become a part of Access Graphics, which uh, is okay. which is under the umbrella of Lockheed. Damn, that's nuts. Yeah. So I guess for his company that became part. So he was the entrepreneur of his company. Okay. Interesting. For Big Brother, Burke Ramsey was John Benet's big brother. He was nine years old when John Benet went missing. When Burke's mom realized his little sister was nowhere to be found. His mother frantically woke him up in the middle of the night. Burke didn't get up and help search for John Benet. He said, I'm tired and just kept sleeping. <laughs> he didn't get up. Scared and confused, he stayed in bed until a police officer entered his room, shining a flashlight in the terrified little boy's face. I wonder what his. I wonder exactly what was said to him. I thought it was early in the morning. Not like at night. What, Friend, what's, the what's the middle of the night? I mean, we'll get into the exact the details. Went I'll go through the, the exact hour-by-hour hour timeline after this. Five, where did John Bonet go? The day after Christmas, John Bonet Ramsey's mom had no idea where her daughter was. At 5.52 a.m., she called 911 to report her daughter missing. On the kitchen staircase, Patsy discovered a ransom note. Most ransom notes are short, a few words at most. This ransom note was two and a half pages in length. Six, the suspicious ransom note, part one. The ransom note baffled authorities then and now. Both the note and a rough draft used a pen and pieces of paper from the Ramsey's home. This meant the note was written at the crime scene. The length of the note and the location of its writing led the police to believe that it was staged. The inclusion of exclamation marks and the absence of fingerprints added to their suspicion. Why did the uh, absence of fingerprints add to the suspicion? If, they're wearing glo- if the perpetrator's wearing gloves, wouldn't there wouldn't be well, any fingerprints. Uh, I think internally, like, um, I don't know, like, sus- suspecting the parents, is that... Is yeah, that but if the per- yeah, but why is the lack... It said the, la- the absence of fingerprints added to their suspicion. Also, the exclamation points. Wouldn't all that insanity just prove that it might be someone who knew John Binet? and not necessarily the parents? I don't know. 
uh, seven, the suspicious ransom note part two. For John Bonet to return safely, the ransom note demanded one hundred and eighteen thousand dollars. That was the exact amount of the bonus that John Bonet's father received that year. In their report, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation stated that there are indications that the author of the ransom note is Patricia Ramsey, a handwriting expert. China Wong believed Patsy wrote the note too. No one, though, has been able to prove it. And that's always debatable because there's experts on both sides. They say it was her, they say it wasn't her, and then there's experts who say that it can't be determined. (laughs) And obviously we'll have to do a specific episode just on that. Eight, home for the holidays. The only individuals known to be in the Ramsey household around the time the murder took place were members of John Bonet's immediate family. There were no grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, or cousins present. John Bonet's Brother, mother, and father were, were, to all appearances, the only people home. The police officers who arrived three minutes after the phone call couldn't find any evidence of forced entry or break-in. 9. Careless cops. Though the ransom note specifically stated that no cops or friends should be contacted, the Ramsey's home was soon packed with people and police officers. Certain that they were dealing with a kidnapping, the cops sealed off John Bonet's room, but no other parts of the house. Friends, ministers, and victim advocates were all contaminating possible evidence elsewhere in the house. It's like a Springfield 3 situation where they had all those people in the house contaminating all critical evidence. 10. Show them the money. John Ramsey immediately made arrangements for the money to be paid. At 8 a.m., Boulder Police Detective Linda Arndt entered the scene to help get the kidnappers their money and bring back John Bonet. No attempt was ever made by the kidnappers to acquire the ransom. Unsettled, Arndt asked John and his friend, Fleet White, to inspect the house again to see if anything looked out of place. 11. Finding John Bonet. John and Fleet started their inspection in the basement. The basement featured multiple rooms. In one of the rooms, John discovered his missing daughter. Over John Bonet's mouth was duct tape. Around her wrists and neck was nylon cord. A white blanket covered her torso. 12. Moving John Bonet. Without waiting a second, John picked up his daughter's body and brought it upstairs. Arndt then took ownership of the body, moving it into the living room. Each time the body was moved, Each time someone else touched the body, crucial evidence was contaminated and rendered obsolete. 13. A change of clothes. John, Patsy, and Burke gave the police samples of their handwriting, blood, and hair. John and Patsy were interviewed right away. Burke was interviewed within a couple of weeks. Patsy observed that John Bonet was wearing different clothes than the ones she had on for bedtime. When John Bonet was found, she was wearing white leggings and a shirt. You know what's weird? If Patsy is not involved, would that be make her more or less likely to say that she was found in a different pair of clothes than she went to bed in? Hmm. What do you guys think? <laughs> what do you guys think? Nothing, Maxwell? I got nothing. <laughs> Maxwell Army. Hey, Johnny? Can you, can you say that again? What, what? If... Patsy's involved. Let's if Patsy's responsible, would that make her more or less likely to say that John Bonet was found in different clothes than she went to bed in? Because hmm. apparently she said she was not wearing the clo- the clothes that she had on when she went to sleep. She was wearing different clothes That's when she was found. Now, uh, if Patsy's guilty, would, does would that lean, make her more lean, or less? I would lean towards like not being involved. 
Yeah, because it's Because why weird. would you even mention yeah. it? What do you think? I'm thinking the same thing. Yeah, me too. Me too. Hmm. But is that actually it, proven? Is that true? Like, where did her clothes go that she was wearing? We'll get into we'll and, get and, into and the if, evidence. And if, and if she's and if she if she is involved, why would you why would you? Well, I'm sure well, they asked her what what she was wearing when she before, went to bed. Yeah, yeah. Before yeah, she was that's found. interesting. So she even gave she either gave the real answer or intentionally lied. Hmm. How old was she again? Was she like eight, six. Oh, six. Mm. I was gonna say maybe she changed herself. But she already got dressed for bed to go to bed though. But, I mean, she stayed up and was like, eh, I hate these clothes that my mom put me on. Put on me. <laughs> well, we don't know if her mom put her in her if she chose her own bedtime clothes. I mean, how many pairs of bedtime clothes do kids have? I mean, she's a beauty pageant. Yeah, but does that mean she has like 50 different pairs of sleepwear? <laughs> <laughs> huh. I don't know. Maybe. All right. Uh, let's see. 14, cause of death. John Bonet's autopsy unveiled that she had died due to a fracture to the skull and strangulation. The autopsy did not reveal evidence of rape, but that didn't mean that sexual assault wasn't possible. Although no semen was found, there were signs of a vaginal injury. It also seemed as if her genital region had been wiped with a cloth. And there's a whole bunch of weird stuff with the autopsy as well. 15, pineapple. The autopsy also showed that pineapple had been in John Bonet's body just a few hours prior to her murder. Pictures of Ramsey's home that day reveal a bowl of pineapple was put out on the kitchen table. Neither John nor Patsy recall fixing that bowl of pineapple. They also don't recall feeding any pineapple to John Bonet. Police say that Burke's fingerprints were detected on the bowl. John and Patsy have always stated that up until the arrival of the police, Burke was asleep. Although if Burke's fingerprints are on the bowl, that doesn't mean he touched the bowl right then. He could have touched the bowl earlier in the day. Yeah, right? if it but was they didn't know anything about the bowl. Or the pineapple. The, the parents? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So he would, like a pineapple is not the easiest thing to cut up. Who's Burke again? Yeah, that's true. Who's Burke? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is that the dad? Just the, the brother. brother. Oh. Unless they buy Burke like Ramsey. A, oh, we spent okay, we spent okay. about an hour talking about him on the last podcast. Doctor Phil interview. Unless they're buying like a a, a pre cut yeah pineapple that'd be interesting. But I'm picturing yeah. like an actual pineapple that they're cutting up themselves. But I don't know if that's fixing a bowl of pineapple. That's what that's what it seems like from this description. Yeah. Because wasn't there a, oh, no flashlight or something? Yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah. 16, now on CNN. On New Year's Day, January 1st, 1997, the Ramses agreed to go on CNN. With suspicion growing about their involvement, they asserted their innocence and warned the viewing audience that there was a killer on the loose. The Ramses then announced that they would be giving a $50,000 reward for any clues that led to the capture of the killer. The Ramses then obtained an attorney and private investigators to assist in the hunt. For the killers. Now, you know what's weird? Okay, we're talking January 1st, 97. Okay, so even with inflation and everything, obviously that's more money now. But the guy got a $118,000 bonus for Christmas. He doesn't think his daughter's worth 100000 initially. Not to mention, aren't they wealthy? Yeah. That's what I thought, yeah. And even if they weren't, I mean, I'm sure they have friends and other family members. Like, they couldn't... If fifty, I mean, fifty thousand's a lot, but I mean, if it was like a hundred or two hundred or three hundred or five hundred thousand, wouldn't that be more likely to get somebody to turn the killer in? Yeah, and then also like with the beauty pageants, is there a money prize also? I don't know. 
I don't know. Like, what the financials of that? Probably. So, okay, seventeen, a hundred thousand dollars in question. By April of ninety-seven, the Ramses had doubled the reward, making it a hundred thousand dollars. It took all the way to April. If your daughter isn't fat, first of all, I don't know, Maxwell. What do you think? Would you would you offer a bigger reward right off the bat? I mean, it depends. If you got a hundred and eighteen thousand dollar bonus, <laughs> don't you think a hundred of that is is justified? Unless they really thought so. And then is it a tax write-off? Like, oh, I have to give it off for a ransom note. I don't know. Like, you just write know, off That's messed tax. up. That's I'm just messed up like, question. <laughs> I don't know. Something to think about. You gotta bring it to your accountant, right? Like, yeah, that's cold. I, I know. This... But if your daughter's missing, I'm sure you're not thinking about that. I no, think. after I the know. fact, I'm just thinking now. Like, I'm not making a joke or anything. I'm just... You're just giving up 100K. Like, what are you doing? Oh, it's a reward, so I guess so, right? Because it's just... You're not paying for something. It's a... I don't know. I don't know. Actually, also in April, the Ramses agreed to be formally questioned by the police. The relationship between John Bonet's parents and the police was filled with mutual distrust and suspicion. Due to the ransom note and the lack of forced entry, the police suspected John and Patsy were the killers. In return, John and Patsy's lawyer accused the police of a cowardly smear campaign. 18, going back to Georgia. By the summer of 97, the Ramses had had enough of Boulder, Colorado. Before moving to Boulder, the Ramses lived in the affluent Atlanta Dunwoody neighborhood. The Ramses were headed back to Georgia once again. They had buried John Bonet at the St. James Episcopal Cemetery in Marietta, Georgia. They bought a $700,000 home near there and moved in. Damn. Here's what's weird. I mean, if you're that rich, wouldn't you just flat out go one mil for a reward? That'd be enough. Would 50000 be enough for some, let's say it was an intruder killer and maybe he, some guy, some shady guy who knew the shady killer possibly thought he might be involved. For fifty grand, is he going to risk his life if he thinks that person's going to kill him if he rats him out? Yeah. But for a mill, he'd be like, screw that guy. I'll take my chances <laughs> for a mill. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I'd do the one mill and then be like, eh, I'll just give you fifty k. <laughs> well, it has to lead to the... Yeah. perpetrator so if you're you know it has to be proven to lead to the perpetrator yeah 19 still suspicious nearing the one-year anniversary of john benet's tragic death the police told the public that both john and patsy continue to be under an umbrella of suspicion the police wanted to question them more john wrote the boulder district attorney alex hunter informing him that they could talk anytime any place so long as no cops were present Huh. Interesting. 20. Leave the parents alone. In the spring of 98, Hunter concluded that there wasn't enough evidence to implicate the Ramses. He mused that the, attentions the, Ram- the attention the Ramses were getting might be hobbling the search for the actual killer or killers. Many commentators and investigators believed the Ramses couldn't be implicated due to how compromised the initial crime scene was. 21. The grand jury speaks up. In September of 98, a grand jury was brought together to perhaps indict the Ramses on charges relating to the murder of their daughter. The grand jury said the Ramses could be charged with placing their child at risk and with getting in the way of a murder investigation. Despite the grand jury's belief, Alex Hunter chose not to prosecute because he didn't believe he had the evidence to prove their guilt. 22. Lou speaks up. Lou Smith was an experienced homicide detective who suspended his retirement to work on the Ramsey case. A year and a half later, Smith resigned out of frustration with how the Boulder police were handling the case. Smith believed the evidence points to a 
careful, calculated murder by a sneaky intruder. Smith does not believe, as many others do, that Patsy killed her daughter during a fit of uncontrollable rage. Now, it's important to note that I believe Lou Smith was actually hired by the family. So depending on what they were paying him, we don't know if he maybe suspected that they might have had involvement, but if he was being specifically paid to find an intruder, he was kind of influenced to find an intruder. So that's kind of where his mind were, went. Not necessarily mm-hmm. that he found proof that they, the parents killed her and he intentionally diverted attention. He might have really just been paid to explore the intruder theory and he believed it was possible, so he just went with it because that's what he was paid to do. Hmm. And maybe he really did believe it also, but we can't take that exactly the same as someone completely objective. 23, a book is published. In February of 99, the first informative book about the John Benet Ramsey case was published. The book was over 600 pages and authored by Lawrence Schiller, a credible journalist. How do we know that Schiller's not <laughs> Schilling? That he's not a shill? The book, named Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, gives reader an intimate peek into the ordeal. It also doesn't hesitate to include the details about all the conflicts and battles that took place between police officers and prosecutors. 24. Can't get no satisfaction. Despite not being charged, the Ramseys continue to be unsatisfied. In October of 99, the Ramseys said, We take no satisfaction in this result because a child killer remains free and undetected. CNN would not bring the Ramseys satisfactions either. On CNN, Larry King Live, Patsy and Boulder Police Detective Steve Thomas battled over whether or not Patsy had indeed killed John Bonet after she wet her bed. 25. Another book is published. Due to his firm belief that Patsy killed her daughter, Steve Thomas published a book with St. Martin's Press expressing his conviction. The Ramseys filed a libel and defamation suit against Thomas and other Boulder police authorities. They also sued St. Martin's Press. The Ramseys were seeking $65 million. What? That's kind of a lot of money. They doing the same thing now. I think the dad... Wait, is that... Back then or now? That was back then. He's yeah. doing that now too, I think. Okay. And his son Burke also. Yes, is, for for yeah. Doctor Phil. Yeah. And yeah. then there was also another, and there was another documentary <laughs> they're doing. I have a question about what? the twenty-four. What? Uh, did you said the the bed was wet. Yes. Huh. That's disputable. We'll get into that. I'm just. Mm. This is just the outline. Okay. We're gonna go into the specifics. Why you think John Bonet is on her way to becoming a serial killer because uh, she nah, wet the bed? Um. No, I mean just no, I. It's just interesting. Yeah. Wait, wait, what, what What was that? Well, in our in our Science of Evil podcast, if you haven't checked that out, check that out. We talked about whether triad, serial the killers... The triad. And, and amongst other things, whether serial killers are kind of born evil or whether it's uh, environmental factors cause them to be violent criminals. And one of, the, one of the aspects Maxwell brought up was this McDonald triad where one of the symptoms is bedwetting. And it the was other, bedwetting, arson, and uh, cruelty to animals. Cruelty to animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So twenty six, cancer comes back in ninety three. Three years after the birth of John Bonet, and three years before her death, Patsy was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. On February two thousand two, the Ramses, through their attorney, announced that Patsy's ovarian cancer had returned. 27 male DNA bolstering the theory that John Bonet had been killed by an intruder a male DNA sample was taken from a blood stain in John Bonet's underwear in December of 2003 the district attorney's office in Boulder forwarded the DNA to the FBI for the Ramsey family the DNA showed how inept the police were 
As their attorney, L. Lynn Wood, said, the DNA was never pursued by the Boulder PD in terms of trying to get it into any state or national data bank. 2003? Yeah. That's when they finally looked at it, tested it, sent it. it sent yes, well, well that's when the sample it, right? was taken, yes. That's garbage. Yep. 28, the mom passes away. Three years after the found DNA of an anonymous male, Patsy Ramsey died. Her battle with ovarian cancer spanned decades, deaths, and a media circus. Patsy chose to die at the house of her father. Her husband was with her. Now Patsy lies beside her departed daughter. She is buried at St. James Episcopal Cemetery in Marietta, Georgia, next to John Binet. 29, another suspect emerges. In December 2000... A paranoid schizophrenic named Gary Howard Oliva was arrested on the University of Colorado campus. He was carrying a weapon that was suspected to have been used on John Bonet. Though Oliva admitted he was obsessed with John Bonet and was close to the Ramsey's home at the time of the murder, he was eventually released. He was later quoted saying he made a pact with the late beauty queen's soul and wanted to keep her memory alive. <laughs> Yeah, what so this is, people? yeah, Gary Oliva. We talked about him briefly. What yeah. do you think about this guy, Maxwell? Uh, I don't know anything about him. I, well, I just, first of all, we discussed him on the previous podcast. Second of all, I just said he was arrested on University of Colorado campus carrying a weapon. And he just said he made a pact with the late beauty queen's soul and wanted to keep her memory alive. And he supposedly he was close to the Ramsey's home at the time of the murder. You have no thoughts at all on this guy. I don't know, it's kind of weird that he's carrying a weapon. John, that that's the only weird part? Not that he was near the home or that he made a pact with <laughs> No, no, with the her. pact with the soul thing, man. Matt why would you think even that's say, weird? He why would you say that out loud? He only pact. thinks it's weird that he carries a weapon on a, on a <laughs> university. A pact with a soul, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, some DWB action. So why, yeah, wait, why wait, would you say who that witnessed, out loud? Who witnessed this? Like, I don't get it. Witnessed what? This is just what this guy said. Oh, he said that. Damn. Yes. Yeah. You have no thoughts on why? Why would he, he say a, that? Well, supposedly he's a schizophrenic. Oh, that's what they said. Okay, no thoughts. He's a a weirdo. Yeah, he's thirty. One of those people. South Park sticks its satire in. Comedy Central's controversial show has never passed up the chance to make fun of something, no matter how sensitive it may be. In two thousand one, Comedy Central aired the South Park episode "Butter's Own Show." In it, famous people who many have believed gotten away with murder appear. These people include O.J. Simpson and the Ramses. The episode suggests John Bonet's parents should be held culpable for her death. Years later, in 2011, South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone expressed second thoughts about how they depicted John Bonet's mother and father. Did you see that episode? No. Did you? Maxwell? No, I don't watch South Park. No, did you? No, no I just said I never watched uh, South Park. So, so that's weird. So it's, I kind of want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I want to watch it. Put it, bring it up. No, we don't got time for that. No, bring it up. Well, we can talk about it. I don't know. It's kind of like, was it evil? I mean, not evil, but like they insinuated completely... that the parents got away with her murder. What you know? Uh, oh, okay. Wow. It's literally, like thirty seconds or fifty seconds. Oh. Ah, 
It's OJ. I was at them. That was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. Eh, I mean, I don't that's know. It? That's it? That's all it was? That's so weird. That's weird. 31. Enter John Mark Carr. Throughout the John Bonet ordeal, no one was mentioning John Mark Carr. Carr was a 41-year-old elementary school teacher. He had three sons... He was divorced, and he was living in Bangkok, Thailand. In August of 2006, authorities said that Carr was a prime suspect. According to Carr, he was with John Bonet when she died. Carr claims to have loved John Bonet very much, and that her death was never meant to happen. Remember that guy? I do remember. Yeah, yeah his interviews are are very bizarre. I've never seen them though. The 32, the crimes of Carr. After his confession in Bangkok, Carr gives a sample of his DNA. Carr is extradited back to the United States where more DNA tests will be undertaken. Soon it becomes clear that Carr is not John Bonet's murderer. His DNA doesn't match with any of the DNA. However, Carr must go to California where he faces five misdemeanor charges related to child pornography. You know what's weird though, again, is the DNA a red herring? So what if he doesn't match the DNA? What if that that DNA could belong to somebody else who has nothing to do with her murder, and he just and the real murderer didn't leave DNA? Like, why? It seems kind of weird that they put all of this faith in that that specific DNA is the DNA of the murderer. How can you say that? It's so weird. Yeah, where did it come from? I mean, sure, it could be the murderers, but if it's also contaminated for whatever reason, and that was the only thing they found. It was small too. Supposedly, yeah. Hmm. Okay, 33, all apologies. It's the summer of 2008. Alex Hunter is no longer the Boulder District Attorney. That distinction now belonged to Mary Lacey. After further DNA testing, Lacey had something to say to the Ramsey family. Okay, in a letter to John Ramsey, she apologizes. The DNA demonstrated that John Bonet was killed by an unknown male, not by her mom, dad, or brother. Lacey tells the family she is sorry for putting them under a cloud of suspicion for more than a decade. Once again, how does the DNA demonstrate that? Or what if there were two people responsible for killing her, or even three, and the DNA does belong to one of them, but not the others? I mean, how are all these determinations made? I don't know. 34, Mary Lacey in her own words. In the apology, Lacey says that significant new evidence convinces us that it is appropriate to state that we do not consider your immediate family, including you, your wife, Patsy, and your son, Burke, to be under any suspicion in the commission of this crime. Lacey goes on to say that authorities will now treat you as the victims of this crime with the sympathy due you because of the horrific loss you suffered. 35, Burke talks again, and John Bonet's father marries again. Even with Lacey's letter, the police continued to speak to Burke. In September 2010, Colorado investigators began a new batch of interviews, including interviewing John Bonet's brother again. Meanwhile, Burke's father, John, married Jan Rousseau. At 53 years old, Jan was a Las Vegas designer who had already divorced twice. John and Jan married in a private ceremony in Charlevoix, Michigan. 36. Nope, it actually wasn't an intruder. Despite DNA testing and Lacey's apology letter, police officers and investigators still weren't convinced of the Ramsey's innocence. One former lead detective, A. James Kolar, firmly believed that John Bonet's murder had been an inside job. 
He expressed his belief in the book Foreign Faction, who really kidnapped John Binet. 37 CBS documentaries. In September 2016, CBS aired a two-part docuseries reliving the ordeal of John Benet Ramsey and everything that she and her family and friends suffered through. An investigative team featuring, among others, an FBI profiler and a criminal behavioral analyst stated their belief that Burke most likely accidentally killed his sister. Did you see that documentary? No. Maxwell's probably seen it. He's always up to date on all the cases we cover. What a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> the CBS documentary that came out in 2016. They pointed the finger at Burke. 38, Burke Strikes Back. Shortly after the documentary aired on CBS, the family began legal action against CBS. As their attorney, Lynn Wood, declared... I am absolutely going to sue CBS on behalf of Burke as a result of the false accusations and fraud of the docuseries. Burke went on Dr. Phil to defend himself. I don't know what to say about all that because that's not what happened. Clearly, the cloud of suspicion, despite what some assured, has not been destroyed when it comes to people's belief that someone in the Ramsey family killed John Binet. So here's the thing, though. What if Burke has, like, a split personality and he's telling the truth? Mm-hmm. One of his personalities is telling the truth. One, of, one, is the, one isn't. And also, it's, obviously, it's like, you, like you mentioned before, Johnny, he was, he was very smiley in that interview with yeah. Dr. Phil. Very That's weird. It's possible for, you know. Or not even a split personality, but when the human brain experiences some kind of traumatic event, it blacks yeah. out. He might not remember. Yeah. I mean, that does happen as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be crazy if he accidentally killed her, but there was also an intruder who was breaking in to kill her, but she was already dead. Oh. Would that, wow. ex- would that explain something? Damn. What do you think, Maxwell? What do you think of that theory? Uh, I don't know. I don't want to do this. As, as crazy as the owl theory. All right. So that was basically the 20-year timeline. Let's go over the exact hours of what happened when. So this is Wednesday, Christmas Day, 96. At 5 p.m., the Ramses went to the home of family friends Fleet and Priscilla White for Christmas dinner. The Whites live a mile away. At 9 p.m., the Ramses left the Whites' house dis- delivering Christmas gifts to two families, the Walkers and the Steins, on the way home. 9.30 p.m. The Ramseys arrived home. They said John Binet had fallen asleep in the car. Without waking her, John said he carried her upstairs and Patsy prepared her for bed. John said Burke and he worked downstairs on Burke's new model, model train. Earlier rumors had said John read Burke a story. 10 p.m. John and Patsy said they went to bed, as did Burke. This is the time they gave for the last time they saw John Binet alive, sleeping in her bed. Thursday, December 26, 96, midnight, around midnight, Melody Stanton, a neighbor across the street and diagonal from the Ramses, said she heard a piercing scream shortly after midnight. Her husband, Luther, slept through the scream, but said he heard the sound of metal scraping on concrete. Neighbor to the north, Scott Gibbons, said he saw odd lights in the home. John and Patsy reported hearing nothing, but tabloids say Burke heard noises shortly after midnight. So we have a lot of different information on what in happened. House. Yeah, around midnight. Yeah. <clears throat> so that metal scraping noise, we'll, we'll get to that. That could have been a shovel. Some people think that could have been a, a sewer manhole cover. Okay, 5.45 a.m., Patsy and John said they woke up to catch a 7 a.m. plane to Michigan. 
John took a shower and Patsy went down the spiral staircase. She found the ransom note on the rung of the stairs. She screamed to John when she read the line, We have your daughter. Patsy checked Jean Benet's room and saw she was missing. The Ramsey said they looked in Burke's room but didn't wake him. According to Vanity Fair, Patsy told French two versions in an interview. One, she went to wake John Benet up, found her missing, then found the note on the stairs. Two, she found the note when she went downstairs to make coffee and then checked on John Benet. In the documentary produced by Michael Tracy, she told version three that she went down the spiral stairs after getting some clothes together in the laundry cupboard outside John Benet's room. So she told three different stories. What does that tell you, Maxwell? Does that mean she's lying, or does that mean she can't remember correctly? Misremembering, just like Maxwell Powers type. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be mis misremembering. I don't know, it's kind of interesting. 5.51 a.m. Patsy called 911 to report the kidnapping of John Benet, although the note said the child would be killed if the police were notified. You know what else we haven't really talked about? What if she was alive and being held in the house or nearby the house, and when they called the police, if they had a police scanner or whatever, <laughs> they killed her. They killed her after the call to the police. Huh. Has that theory ever been discussed? But there's no like break-in areas or. Well, we'll get to that. What about the basement window? But that's small, right? Tiny. Lou Smith, who's like a, who was old, climbed through it pretty easily. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a video of him doing it. Uh, but the window was completely broken out or just like a little hole? We'll I get it to it. <laughs> you could slip through it. Maxwell, right. thoughts? Uh, I don't know. Maxwell Army. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Patsy failed to hang the phone up properly. Burke's voice can allegedly be heard in the background of an enhanced version of the taped call, which would contradict the statements of all three Ramses that Burke was not awake at that time. Can you bring that up? Yeah. So uh, they said that Burke wasn't awake, but you could hear him in the background because she didn't hang the phone up all the way. I can't hear Burke in the background. Yeah, it's you gotta like read what they're saying here. It's kind of hard to follow. Uh, so they, uh, huh. it's just looped. Yeah, it was looped because they're trying to find the little areas where he might have been saying something. Huh. But it's really hard to understand. Okay, I'm sending it off the film, okay? Do you know how long she's been gone? No, I don't. 
She doesn't sound like she's acting, though. What do you think, Maxwell? No acting. So that means she doesn't know what happened? I guess so, but, like, how would you, like, say she did do it? Would she be able to call and, like, fake it? You know what I mean? You, like, you knew you did it. Like, <sighs> Or if she thinks that? at that, what if at that moment they don't know what happened to her and Bur- and somehow they think Burke did it after that moment that she called? Because hmm. that call sounds genuine to me. I also can't pick up, I can't pick up Burke in the background. No, it's at the last part, but yeah, it's hard to hear. Did you hear anything, Maxwell? No, nothing. Probably got to listen to it a little. Okay, here's another piece of info that uh, I haven't heard before. There was a mystery 911 call days before John Benet's murder. Hmm. On Boxing Day 1996, police received a strange call from a hysterical mother whose beauty queen daughter had disappeared with a threatening ransom note left in her place. It was the beginning of the grisly John Benet Ramsey murder case, which has gripped the world for almost two decades and remains unsolved as the 20th anniversary approaches. But a true crime writing duo claimed the crime was foreshadowed three days earlier with another mysterious 911 call made from the luxurious Ramsey home. Police in Boulder, Colorado received a silent call on the evening of December 23rd, but when they rang back, no one picked it up. An officer drove to the location from which the call had been made to check if anything was wrong. A Christmas party was in full swing at the 15-room two-door home, and the door was answered by a family friend of John and Patsy Ramsey, Susan Stein. She blamed the call on someone trying to order medicine for an aging parent who had not meant to use the emergency number. She would not let police in. Whoa! Wait, what house did they go to? This was at the Ramsey house. And some other person opened the door? Well, they had a party. They were having a party. Yes. When you said that, I thought of the, the most insane thing. What? But, like, obviously, I mean, I don't know. Who, who knows? But I just thought of, like, uh, when you said that they called the 23rd. Yeah. And then earlier you said that she was asleep in the car. Yeah. Like, what if <laughs> what if she died, like, three days before and she, they were just taking her around? Oh, she's just sleeping. No, but they saw people saw her before. Sleeping? No, but when they carried her from the car sleeping, that was that night she disappeared. That wasn't three days before. I know, I know that. I'm just... Like, that's the only uh, account that you were talking about that was brought up. But, like, prior to that, what if they just said, like, she's just sleeping or something? She like, died at the other ha- at the wife. I don't know. Just even if it was wife. the day before or something. That's like, pretty crazy. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. I mean, probably not. Actually, no, now I'm thinking about it. The pineapple. Yeah. So the pineapple was in her oh, stomach, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. So that we're going to get to that. We're going to get yeah, to cut that. that whole part out. <laughs> Well, there's no such thing as a bad theory. If the theory leads you to question something that could lead to something else, yeah, that's what it, you know. We're just theorizing. But this is this is dark because she wouldn't let the police in. What kind of party was this? There were rumors of satanic occult parties in Boulder, Colorado. Were the parents involved with that? Was John Benet involved in that? Why won't they let her in? And did John Benet or even Burke call the police for help that night, but they were too scared to say anything? Hmm. And they thought they might the police might show up just if they called. Or if it was someone else at the party who didn't know what kind of party it was, and they were afraid to say anything, so they just called the police hoping that they would come in at a certain moment. There's a lot of crazy rumors in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it's not that far. We should go. We should go check it out. Yeah, Maxwell, road trip. Uh, yeah, let's let's do it. Where are we going? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Maxwell Army. All right. Lisa Wilson and Nick Vanderleek, authors of the Craven Silence trilogy, believe there was more to this call and that those present may have become involuntarily complicit. We believe something happened at the party, something serious. They told news.com.au. Secrets kept on December 23rd were repeated under far more serious circumstances three days later. This time, the Ramseys knew they could rely on their friends to keep their secrets. Their friends assumed the Ramseys were innocent, and if they felt otherwise later, they were ostracized, sued, or accused. There were also supposed friends of the Ramseys who just never spoke to them again after that day. And we'll be examining all of that in hmm. detail. Hours after Mrs. Ramsey's Boxing Day call, police found six-year-old John Binet dead in the basement of the family home with a homemade garret around her neck, a blow to her head, and DNA in her underwear that still hasn't been identified. The family blamed an intruder who came through the open basement window. I just thought of something else. If if the family did do it, if the parents did do it, and they changed her clothes, and they knew that that underwear had somebody else's DNA on it or something... So then they changed the clothes that she went to bed in hmm. as if that was like the red herring that everybody would focus on. I don't know. Probably not, but... Yeah, she could have just had those on to begin with without having to change the clothes. The family blamed an intruder who came through the open basement window. John Binet had quite a lot of damage to her body, said Mr. Vanderleek. Her back showed scrape marks that suggest she was lying on her back, the garroting happening after she turned onto her stomach. I don't really see it was abuse or assault. It was something else. Interference. Miss Wilson and Mr. Vanderleek have just released the third book in their series on John Binet's death, coinciding with other recent shock revelations from television documentaries and media investigations into the murder. A Colorado grand jury voted in 99 to indict Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey on charges that each did unlawfully, knowingly, recklessly, and feloniously permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation that posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Binet, and did unlawfully, knowingly, recklessly, and feloniously render assistance to a person who had committed murder in the first degree and child abuse resulting in death. I guess they're alleging that it was Burke hmm. and that the parents failed in that regard. Then District Attorney Alex Hunter's decision not to indict has long been controversial. And this weekend, an explosive joint report by the Boulder Daily Camera and local news station 9 News found DNA evidence did not support the former prosecutor's decision to let the family off since it indicated the samples came from at least two people. I haven't heard this before. In September's CBS docuseries, The Case of John Benet Ramsey, a panel of investigators alleged John Benet's brother, nine-year-old Burke, was responsible for the murder and the children's parents, John and Patsy Ramsey, covered up the crime. The Craven Silence authors also believe the Ramseys covered up for their son, although they have a different theory about the murder weapon. Burke, now 29, has strongly denied harming his sister and said in a recent Dr. Phil appearance that he suspected a pedophile who stalked child beauty pageants was the killer. He denounced the CBS documentary theorizing he killed his sister as a false and unprofessional television attack that is riddled with lies, misinterpretations, distortions, and omissions, and has now filed a $150 million defamation lawsuit against one of the panel members, forensic pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz. 
Ms. Wilson and Mr. Vanderleek allege Burke was jealous of his sister because she was beautiful, confident, and shared her mother's passion for pageants. She was like a little celebrity, says Mr. Vanderleek, while her older brother was more awkward. They believe he envied John Bonet receiving a generous bicycle for Christmas when he did not. The Ramses have changed their story over who did and did not get a bike. That's kind of weird. Why would they be changing their story if it had nothing to do with anything? Well, unless if they make if they think something makes Burke look guilty and they don't want that, they would change hmm. the story, even if he didn't do it and they didn't do it. So yeah. I guess that doesn't really say anything. There was certainly an opportunity for kids to run wild a bit, said Mr. Vanderleek. It may have started in bedroom with a pillow fight. John Bonet's room was a mess. There was a pillow on the floor and one in the kitchen. Never heard this before. Maxwell, have you heard this before? That's only in his book. That's from his book you're talking about, right? Yes. How did they get this information? Well, we're going to go over the full police reports with all the evidence. The authors allege she was killed after being struck over the head, only they believe he used a golf club or a baseball bat rather than a torch left on the kitchen table as the CBS documentary. This is an Australian article. Torch? Well, this is an Australian article, so torch is flashlight. Like they're walking around with like a torch with like a little flame <laughs> the <Middle> on ages. <laughs> There's very chilling evidence a child was involved in the crime, said Ms. Wilson. Unusually for the status-seeking family, there were no photos or phone records from that Christmas with Mr. Ramsey claiming he had lost his mobile. If something is a first-time or unusual event on the day someone is killed in their house, you have to ask why, Ms. Wilson added. The absence of evidence is often evidence. Family friend Judith Phillips has told a story about Burke injuring John Bonet with a club a year earlier, while a housekeeper said he had smeared feces in her bed and on one of her Christmas gifts. <laughs> this there are two of the only Ramsey friends to have broken ranks, according to the authors, along with the Whites. Both have faced lawsuits. Hold on a second. They were at the Whites that night. So if something happened at the Whites, they'd probably stay quiet. Or would they make up stories to implicate the Ramses to look away from them? But if nobody was looking at them in the first place, they have no motivation to do that. So maybe the Whites didn't have anything to do with it. I don't know. Hmm. Both have faced lawsuits. Secrets were important to keep because of John Ramsey's massive affluence with his firm, Access Graphics, they say. After Mrs. Ramsey's Boxing Day call, police found a strange three-page ransom note apparently from a small foreign faction who demanded $118,000 for John Bonet's return, the exact figure of her successful businessman father's bonus. That's really strange if he did. So he had a mobile phone in 96. I mean, he's rich, so okay. Some people had mobile phones in the late 80s, so 96 is not that crazy if you're part of a billion-dollar company. But he lost it that day? <laughs> That's kind of weird. I never heard this before. Maxwell? He lost the cell phone that day. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, cause like, that's what he said. He said he misplaced it or lost it. What what could be on that cell phone? I uh, probably nothing. Can they get the, they can get the cell phone records, right? Yeah, I guess so. So I'm sure the police checked that out, right? Especially if they thought he was guilty, or the text messages they wouldn't be able to do anything with, right? Or I don't know. Was text out then in '96? Yeah, I don't know if it was. Wait, can but, you check? Well, but before you said that, you mentioned that they didn't have any photographs. And then, there is a photograph of the previous. But you, but you said that there's missing photographs or something, or there's no photos or something. Right before you read the whole, he lost his mobile phone. Yeah. You said that there's. 
Oh, they said they didn't take photos. Oh, they didn't take day. any photos. Like when you said that, and then you immediately went to the mobile phone. I thought like he had a camera on oh, his no. phone. <laughs> so then uh, he lost his phone with all the pictures on it. No, but uh, okay. So first, well, if this is Christmas Eve. Shouldn't they be taking photographs? I mean, I don't know. Do families take photographs on Christmas Eve? Uh, I think thing? so. Definitely back then too. Yeah, you'd probably take a lot more photos to get them developed. Can you, so can you send, were, were cell phones in 1996 able to send text messages? I'm thinking, yeah, because what about pagers? pagers? First text message was in 92. Okay, so yes. And it typed Merry Christmas. So 96. But that, that just means they sent it from a computer to a phone. That's just the first one that showed oh. that it was possible. But I don't know when it was actually mainstream. Nokia was the first handset manufacturer whose total GSM phone line in 93 supported user sending of SMS text messages. Okay. So, 93, so I guess... So 93, so this is a couple years later, he's a big wig CEO at a big company, so his phone could probably do text messages. But he lost it, they never found it. Yeah, so Maxwell, yeah, in 93, they started text messaging. So by 96, it's there pretty could be common. text messages. So he lost his cell phone, if that's true. We have to corroborate all of this. So, the note was written on Mrs. Ramsey's pad along with some practice drafts. What? Mm. Have you heard of practice drafts? Nope. What the heck? Wonder what they said. The other and ones. police repeatedly compared it to her writing, but could not draw a conclusive answer about whether they matched. The Ramseys moved into the home of Glenn and Susan Stein shortly after the murder and stayed for five or six months, even after Mr. Ramsey returned to work. Mrs. Stein, nicknamed Patsy's Pitbull, often drove the boys to school, and Mr. Stein was often employed by Ramsey. Keep in mind, they dropped off presents at the Stein's house as well on that night. Mm -hmm. There was this incredible solidarity with them, said Miss Wilson. What's frightening about the case is the way a very wealthy family got everybody to dance, said Mr. Vanderleek. There are likely to be more revelations over the coming months as the anniversary approaches and with Burke Ramsey taking Dr. Spitz to court. We can only hope it finally leads to justice for John Binet. And this was an article published November 3rd, 2016 on news.com.au. So that is some pretty in crazy revelations and information that I don't believe most people know. Okay, so back to the timeline. So 5.51 a.m. was the 911 call. They said Burke was not awake, awake at that time. 5.52 a.m., the first police officers, Richard French and Carl Veitch, responded to the call. According to the affidavit accompanying the 1226 search warrant, it is not clear if this is when they were dispatched or when they actually arrived at the home. It seems more likely that they actually arrived some minutes later. They were shown the ransom note and told by John Ramsey that the doors and windows had been secured the night before. French is the officer who in Vanity Fair mentioned John pacing while Patsy watched behind splayed fingers. Police reportedly said Patsy was wearing fresh makeup and the clothes she had worn to dinner the night before. According to Lawrence Schiller in Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, the first police arrived at 5.59 a.m. So between 5.55 and 6 a.m., according to Vanity Fair, Fleet said John Ramsey called friends Fleet and Priscilla White to come over immediately and likely called John and friends Barbara Fernie at that time as well. According to Schiller, Patsy called the Whites at 6 a.m. and spoke with Priscilla. By the time the Whites reached the Ramsey home, the police and John Fernie were already there. 
between 6 and 8 a.m. Officer Paul Reichenbach. So it was actually settled, the thing with uh, Burke and CBS. No, so, uh, yeah, Burke, Ramsey sued uh, CBS because of that docuseries they yeah. did. So I think he was trying to sue for $750 million. 750? $750 million, yeah. He was trying so, to. Okay. But then, um, so it's possible that he didn't actually get 750 but he didn't get any less than $150 million. No, really? $250 million, no less than What's 250. the source on that? NPR.org. I mean, it just says the final settlement amount was not disclosed, but the complaint filed in Michigan was seeking no less than $250 million. But that still doesn't mean they really got it, right? Because that just means... I mean, I guess, but... And no less than $500 million in punitive damages. So I guess he did do the 750 so it's 250 plus the 500 He won a 750 Oh, it said he won the settlement? Yeah, it says... That's uh, crazy. Rent, uh, defamation lawsuit. Settles defamation lawsuit with CBS. That's crazy. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot of money. So he had to prove it wasn't true, right? Because any kind of libel, like, yeah, because if it's true, you can't sue somebody for telling the truth. So you have to be able to prove the the amount required to prove it's not true is kind of a lot because you have to prove it wasn't true. I wonder how he did that, or if the lawyers just didn't feel like dealing with it, <laughs> or. CBS didn't feel like dealing with it. That's weird. Yeah. Okay, so between 6 and 8 a.m., Officer Paul Reichenbach arrived at the house joining French and Veitch. He searched the exterior of the house and the yard, and his testimony about footprints in the snow will be important. Officer Barry Weiss also arrived prior to Detective Arndt's arrival at 8.10 and stayed about an hour. Wasn't it widely reported that Detective Arndt was the first to arrive? Because now there's that's like, the woman. Yeah, there's all that's these what other. I thought, yeah. yeah, there's all these other officers here. <laughs> that's kind of weird. And all the other random people just walking. Or around. I, I guess they were searching the exterior for how long? For two hours? Arndt was the first one, or Arndt was just in there with John Ramsey when he discovered the body. Oh, the other officers left. I think right. Hmm. Is that what it was? Maybe. Yeah, and stayed about an hour. It is not yet known precisely what was done, when it was done, and by which officers. But French made a cursory search of the house interior, including the basement, focusing on points of entry and egress at some point that morning. No evidence of forced entry was found. 6.20 a.m. The Whites arrived at the house and joined John Fernie. Reverend Hoverstock came shortly after at 7 a.m. Tabloid story says the private pilot who was to fly the plane to Michigan, Mike Archuleta, drove by to pick them up as planned sometime after the police arrived and that John handed him a box containing incriminating evidence, but Archuleta has denied the story. What the heck? So this is a tabloid story that says the pilot handed, that John handed the pilot a box of incriminating evidence and then John left. John denied the story. At some point that morning, Fleet White performed a cursory search of the house, including the basement, where it has been said he opened the door to the room where the body was found but saw nothing. So there could have been up to an officer and Fleet White who both looked where John Bonet was found and didn't see her and said they found nothing. What does that tell us? If the basement was looked at twice, specifically the area where she was found, and they didn't see her there. That means somebody placed her body there later? Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, she wasn't there, and then she was there. It's kind of like with Avery, like the bones weren't there, and then they were there after. <laughs> Maxwell? I see. That's crazy. That's all you got? Yeah, Can somebody... I, like, this first time I'm hearing that, that he wasn't there. And then it no, wasn't. it's possible that she wasn't there because he didn't see her. 
I so guess. He, been he said he opened the door to the room, found nothing. And supposedly another officer also did a quick search of the That's house, including so the basement. But if you're searching the ba if you're searching a house, you're gonna open every damn door. Yeah, you're yeah. Like if the basement like <laughs> was it you a could dark look at the diagram of the basement. It's a, it's a wine cellar. It seems like it was it dark or like did they turn on the lights or what? They might why would you if you open the door and it's a dark room, are you just gonna be like, Oh, well, I guess there's nothing in there? Get, well, they must have searched with a light. All police yeah. officers have a light on them. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... Like flash I don't know, yeah. So, 7 a.m., approximately, and after, John and Fleet White went to Burke's room and woke him up. According to Schiller, Fleet, along with John Fernie, drove Burke first to the Fernies to pick up his children and took all the kids to the Whites, where White's house guests, friends and relatives from California, looked after the kids. Burke never asked why the family was no longer flying to Michigan as planned, where his sister was, or why police were in the house. At 7.45 a.m., Fleet and Fernie returned to the Ramsey home. Hmm. So what does it mean that he didn't ask, if that's true that he didn't ask? It could mean nothing, because he's not that old. And if he's weird and awkward, or if yeah, he's Was he scared, on medication and stuff? I'm not sure. Was he on medication at the time? Yeah, or I'm not sure. Yeah, at the to, time, or just we have to in check general. Out. Maxwell, what do you think of that? Do you think that he would ask a nine-year-old? I, I mean, I'd be kind of weird out. Why are there police Wait, who walking would, around? Who would, or at least ask, say, "What's going on?" Yeah. Would ask what? Why or why are you going to this house randomly at seven in the morning? Like, why is this going on? I just said why Burke didn't ask any questions about what's going on where his sister is because they're supposed to be flying to Michigan. So I don't know. I don't know if he would ask. I mean, you I asked questions to, that were just answered a second before. This kid's not asking anything about anything. <laughs> Maybe he's too busy playing with G.I. Joes or something. Yeah. While they're walking him to a car and to another house. <laughs> or something like that. Sometimes, mm. you know, probably holding an airplane or something. Probably. <laughs> or more, no less than likely. Anything's <laughs> <laughs> possible. You gotta think of all things. 8.10 a.m., Detective Linda Arndt arrived with Detective Fred Patterson. Arndt was first briefed by Sergeant Reichenbach about the exterior search. Newswick reported that police called victims' advocates to comfort the Ramseys. They brought coffee and bagels, and while tidying up the kitchen, a Ramsey friend was said to have wiped down the counters using a spray cleaner. What? <laughs> what? There's a lot of weird little details here. What? A Ramsey friend was said to have, was said to have. So somebody reported it, whether true or not true. Someone said that. What? I wonder. I wonder if it was a police officer that noticed that. That would well, or well, if there was a conspiracy against yeah. the Ramseys. That I don't know. It would. Ha I, w I wonder if a police officer and also a random friend both Didn't reported they have a that. nanny or something. Yeah. Or like a cleaner. They should have had security. They should have security video. In that, in yeah, but house. they left their doors unlocked. I thought. You know what's crazy? Like nowadays, some parents have like security videos in the kids' bedroom and all through the house. Mm -hmm. Like if they're not Nest. home, to make sure the kids aren't you know killing themselves or whatever. <laughs> so if there was uh or you know messing up that whatever, just yeah, to yeah. keep an eye on their kids, it'd be interesting if there were crimes that could be solved. Yeah, or even back then. Like even back then, this was ninety six. They didn't have exterior security camera footage uh, videos. I know, you're thinking this guy that works for, like, the government. He doesn't work for the government. Well, officially. It's a company Umbrella. that's... Yeah. Well, and his, well, it was his small company that became part of the bigger company, which is part of the umbrella of Lockheed. 
Yeah. But anyway, I mean, even now though, I make. I guess that's not that strange. I mean, even now there are mansions that don't have security cameras outside. True. Some people just. Yeah. What about what about uh, alarm system? I think or they, they did have. An, did they have an alarm system? I would guess, but you, I remember you saying they had like everybody had keys to the house. But you just go yeah, in, yeah, like whatever. forty sets or something. Yeah, like twenty to forty sets. All right, between eight and eight a.m. and one p.m. Detective Arndt monitored incoming calls to the Ramsey residence. The ransom note had stated the kidnapper would contact Ramsey by phone between eight and ten tomorrow. John Ramsey answered the incoming phone calls. None were from the kidnapper. At some point earlier that morning, it has been reported that John Ramsey called a banker friend in Atlanta, said to be Rod Westmoreland, to arrange to get the ransom money in the denominations requested in the note. 9.30 a.m., Sergeant Bob Whitson arrived. He discovered what was thought to be a pry mark on the rear exterior kitchen door but it was later determined that an old lock had fallen off at one point and only resembled a Primark, according to Fox News reporter Carol McKinley. I wonder how you could definitively determine that, though. Yeah, what did it fall off that day <laughs> when somebody tried to break in? An old lock had fallen off at one point. It doesn't say when. <laughs> at one On the point. 26th <laughs> at 12 a.m. Well, it could have been a lot earlier, and yeah, it just it looked have. like a Primark, but... 9.55 a.m. to 10 a.m. According to Lawrence Schiller, at about 10 a.m., John Ramsey went downstairs to the basement alone. In the train room, Ramsey found a broken open window. So it was broken and open, so it wasn't just a small hole. Ramsey closed the window before going back upstairs. John Ramsey did not report the open window to the police at that time. What? <laughs> There's some red flags going up here. Something out of the ordinary, and you go think to close it? Oh, it's what if chilly. it was already broken for a long time? Yeah, it could have been. Out. So the broken window is in the train room. Dang and man. if you look, John Bonet's body was found in a wine cellar. We're looking at this one? Yeah. Basically. Yeah, yep. the letter E. E, where's E? Yeah, E is broken window and suitcase. A is John Bonet's body in the wine cellar storage room. Okay, so we have the E, broken window. And then the body is at A, here. Yeah. Uh, so he, I guess, I mean, his daughter's missing, so yeah. You would think he wouldn't just randomly go around closing windows and not say that to the police. I don't know. Although, if you're in a state of panic, like, you're not really going to be behaving logically, right? Your daughter's missing. You're in a state of absolute panic. Maybe your brain is kind of be- is just kind of trying to find some normalcy. Like, oh, this window's open. Oh, let me close it. I don't know. I'm just theorizing here. When you're absolutely emotionally distraught and not thinking straight. No, no, I, I get it. Yeah, that could totally happen. Like, you don't think it's related. Or you don't even think at all. Your brain's yeah. like on autopilot because your kid's missing. And you say, oh, this window's open. Let me. It's almost like busy work. Like your brain <clears throat> trying to just find something to do to keep from going insane. Like if a picture was crooked on the wall, maybe you fix it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, you might not. You're not thinking that like, it's something that could be related to, to this. And especially since they didn't know that the body was in the basement yet. You probably didn't even think the person, the, the child was in the house. The suitcase under the window contained a sham and a duvet. The hell is that? <laughs> a sham and a duvet? Duvet? Dovet? Patsy Ramsey insisted the, sh- the suitcase didn't belong to anyone in the family. <laughs> Instead, she said that the killer must have brought it to stuff John Bonet's body into it. And then gave up and fled. So what, what's the sham? And duvet. <laughs> <laughs> don't you know English? I don't know what that is. A sham, a 
pillow sham. Oh so yeah, something a pillow a pillowcase. A, a sham is a decorative pillowcase. A, de- a sham is a decorative pillowcase that transforms normal sized pillow fills into useful accessories for one's bedding set. And a duvet or duvet is a cotton shell, and does not provide warmth. So it's like bedding, <laughs> bedding type stuff. It covers a comforter. We are not bedding and uh, home interior experts. Welcome to HGTV. Interior design. <laughs> That's Maxwell's specialty. <laughs> okay, random suitcase in the basement with uh, covers and crap in it. That supposedly doesn't belong to anybody in the that family. That doesn't belong to anybody. And so in order to notice that the window was broken, wouldn't he have noticed, so he didn't notice the suitcase was there <laughs> that didn't belong to anybody? I mean, I guess, again, if you're emotionally distraught, you're I mean, not going to be thinking about suitcases lying around. Looking, the, looking at this diagram, there's nothing else there. That is probably a messy basement. Maybe. Or like, you know, kind of like, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on. They might miss it. All right, so there's also conflicting evidence about conflicting stories about the suitcase. So this is from Listverse. In the basement where John Bonet was found, a blue suitcase rested by the wall directly below the broken window. It does look messy. There looks like there's stuff around it, like clothes oh, and stuff. Wow, that looks like it's from the 80s. But it's also standing up kind of weird, mm-hmm. like right in the middle of a mess. I it don't looks know. Like it could be like used as a, a, like a ladder or like, you know what I mean, to get but up But it's high standing to... vertically. How high was the window? I mean, it was high. It's a basement window. It's not super, I mean, it's not super low. Okay, a blue suitcase rested by the wall directly below the broken window where an intruder may have sneaked in. Patsy Ramsey insisted that the suitcase didn't belong to anyone in the family. Uh, Instead, she said the killer must have brought it to stuff John Bonet's body inside. However, the suitcase belonged to John's eldest son, John Andrew, and the things inside were incredibly unnerving. Inside were a semen-encrusted blanket and a book by Dr. Seuss. At the time, John Andrew was a child. Why are all his sons named John or and his daughters named Jean Benet? Um, at the time, John Andrew was a childless college student, far too old to be reading Dr. Seuss, but the semen on the blanket was proven to be his by a DNA test. The police didn't take the suitcase investigation much further, though. They had already removed John Andrew from the list of suspects because they were confident that he wasn't in town when the murder happened. But he just left his suitcase right under the window? And how long ago did he leave? That's weird. What? Why? Did he live there? Not supposedly not at that time, but we'll have to go through all that. That's really, really, really bizarre. Also, the family commented on that nine one one phone call on December twenty third. Do you know what they said? The family. What yeah, do you mean the family? I guess John and Patsy. Okay. They said it was irrelevant. <laughs> the whole call. Instead was of stating what it was about, yeah. But why? If why'd they call the police then? <laughs> all right. Actually, what the heck? What? John Ramsey dated Natalie Holloway's mother. Who's that? The girl that went missing. In, uh, yeah, look up Natalie Holloway. Wait, John Ramsey dated? Yeah. yeah. After uh, Patsy? Natalie Holloway. John Ramsey and Beth Holloway dated. Brief romance. So she went missing, you said? Natalie Holloway, yeah, one of the most famous cases ever. Almost as famous as John Bonet's case. She's the mother of missing a Rubatine. You don't know? You never heard of the Natalie Holloway case, Maxwell? No, Natalie Holloway? What the hell is that? <laughs> what? Beth Holloway. He dated Beth Holloway. Yeah. Natalie Holloway's mother. Yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha. 
I thought you, okay. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Damn. maybe not the craziest thing ever because if they were going to fundraisers, whatever. But uh, yeah, just a little bizarre. Yes, they had something in common. Though. Okay, so 10.30 a.m. John Benet's bedroom was ordered sealed off by Detectives Arndt and Patterson. At some point in the day, Patterson is said to have interviewed Burke at the Whites' home. From about 10.30 until after the body was found, Detective Arndt was reportedly the only official in the house. It has been reported that she called for backup from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., but no one responded. Any of this sound kind of weird? No? It's perfectly normal, Maxwell? It's okay. <laughs> 10.30 a.m. to noon. Detective Arndt wrote in her report that between 10.30 and noon, John Ramsey left the house to pick up the family mail. This has been interpreted to mean he left the house for an extended period of time, but it, it has since been reported that he didn't leave the house. It is likely that it was actually after 10.30, when Arndt was the only police presence in the house, that John Ramsey went downstairs to the basement alone. Lawrence Schiller wrote that it occurred in an earlier time. This is bizarre. So the police left? Before the body shows up. That's no good. 1 p.m. While Wetched reports that the FBI, called earlier by the BPD, arrived at this time, there is no record of this in any of the affidavits. The 1226 affidavit states that when the phone call from the kidnappers didn't come, Detective Arndt, the only police officer in the house, asked John Ramsey, Fleet White, and John Fernie to check the interior of the residence for any sign of John Bonet or anything that may have been left or taken that belonged to John Bonet. John Ramsey immediately went to the basement of the house, followed by Fleet White and John Fernie. That makes it sound kind of weird, too, because instead of going to a room or whatever, they go to exactly where she's found, and he's got his friends there with him. Is this getting weirder and weirder, Maxwell? And what was the mom doing at this time? Because they never really talked about her. I don't know. Supposedly she wasn't there if they were alone. Or, well, there was only police presence. Who knows? Maybe the mom? Yeah, we don't know. 103 to 105 p.m. Detective Arndt said that she heard and saw Fleet White in the den, crouched at the phone, calling for an ambulance. Moments later, Arndt saw John Ramsey bringing John Bonet's body up the last three stairs of the basement. John Ramsey had found John Bonet's body in a little-used basement storage room, which had no windows, referred to as a wine cellar. He said he removed tape from her mouth, picked her up, and gingerly carried her upstairs. Arndt said she appeared noticeably dead. Her wrists were loosely bound and a crude garret hung from her neck. She was wearing a knit shirt with a sequined silver star on the front and white long johns, and Ramsey said her body had been covered by a white blanket. Hmm. 1.05 p.m. John placed John Bonet's body on the floor in the hallway of the foyer, where he and perhaps others reportedly tried to perform CPR on her. According to profiler John Douglas, Arndt said that it was during this time, while she and John Ramsey were both leaning over the body, that she heard a guttural moan, aching wail from the back area of the house. Detective Arndt told John Ramsey to go back to the room, the den, and dial 911. While Ramsey went to make the phone call, Arndt moved the body a second time, placing it under the Christmas tree in the living room. She said that when John Ramsey returned from making the 911 call, he requested that the body be covered at the very same time that he himself was covering it with a coverlet from the back of a nearby chair, possibly further contaminating the body. A Colorado Avalanche sweatshirt was seen covering the body later as well. 
The others came to the living room from the back area. It was reported that Patsy collapsed on the body, screaming, Jesus, you raised Lazarus from the grave. Raise my baby. Arndt said she asked Reverend Hoverstock to lead the assembled family and friends in the Lord's Prayer. It should be noted that Linda Arndt in her interview with ABC News made no mention of anyone performing CPR in the portions of the interview that were shown. 1.10 p.m., Detective Arndt called 911, gave her radio number, and reported that the kidnapping had turned into a murder. Minutes later, she said she saw an ambulance drive by the house without stopping. At 1.15 p.m., Detective Arndt said she was paged and told that either the police or the ambulance could not find the house. Wasn't her police car parked out front? Or did Arndt just get dropped off and abandoned by the other police officers? 1.25 p.m., police backup arrived at the house in the form of Arndt's supervisors. Detective Michael Everett walked to the basement to see if anybody was hiding there. He saw two blankets in the wine cellar where the body had been found. Sergeant Larry Mason, who oversaw the initial investigation, and Ron Walker arrived as well, along with other police officers, although it is not clear exactly who they were when they arrived or what they did. Isn't any of this logged and documented? 1.30 p.m. According to Lawrence Schiller, detectives overheard John Ramsey calling Mike Arculetta, the private pilot, to his home. She's gone. They've killed her. Ramsey reportedly also told Arculetta to ready the plane for a flight to Atlanta that evening. Sergeant Mason told Ramsey, you can't go. 1.45 p.m. The Ramseys left their home to stay with the Fernies. At the Fernies, they were joined by other friends, including Dr. Buff, John Benet's pediatrician, who tranquilized Patsy and attorney friend Mike Bynum, who advised the Ramseys to retain attorneys. The Ramseys, who had never been questioned in depth or separately, would not be formally questioned until April 30th, 1997, over four months later. Is that kind of weird? Yeah, pretty weird. Should be like within that week or a few days. Should be that day, right? Yeah. Well, pretty much right after finding the body. That's crazy. 1.50 p.m. The house was cleared and finally declared a crime scene and roped off. At some point after the body was found, Fleet White reportedly took Arndt aside and said he had opened the door to the wine cellar earlier and had seen no body. Other reports never verified stated that the door to the room had been stuck when officers tried to open it during an earlier cursory search. Schiller stated that it would be eight hours before anyone went back in the house. Detective Arndt left around 2.35, possibly to see the Ramseys at the Fernie's house. 4 p.m., officials from the DA's office began arriving, including Assistant DA Tripp DeMuth, Peter McGuire, Mary Keenan, and Chief Trial Deputy Pete Hofstrom. 7 p.m., Detectives Fred Patterson and Greg Eidler arrived at the home of the Ramseys' housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh, and spent three hours interviewing her. But for some reason, they don't interview the Ramseys. 7.55 p.m. John's children by his first marriage, 25-year-old Melinda and 20-year-old John Andrew, arrived at the Ramsey home, according to Vanity Fair. Stuart Long, Melinda's fiancé, now husband, accompanied them. They had flown from Atlanta to Minnesota early that morning, planning to join the Ramseys in their private jet for the flight to the Ramsey vacation home in Charlevoix, Michigan. Some reports say they arrived earlier in the day, but after the body was found and before the Ramseys had gone to the Fernies. Now, why is it so hard to nail down exactly when they arrived? That's kind of weird. And John Andrew, is that his suitcase there? 
That's weird. 8 p.m., the first search warrant was finally issued, allowing the search of the house to begin and allowing the coroner to examine the body and remove it. So wait a second, the body sat there for all day? For eight hours? That's weird. This whole case is, is really still weird. under the tree? This is bizarre. Officer James Byfield procured the warrant, and he served it 20 minutes later after it was issued. Dr. John Meyer, the county coroner, was reportedly waiting outside for the warrant to be served so he could examine the body. 8.20 to the rest of the night. Numerous unnamed police officers participated in the search of the 15-room house. Officer Kerry Yamaguchi participated in the search. He noted the computer equipment and internet connection in the Ramsey home, inspiring the December 29th search for possible child porn. The December 26th search and searches authorized by warrants served December 27th and December 29th did not end until late on January 4th, 1997. There would be subsequent searches in both the Boulder home and the Charlevoix home. 8.30 p.m. The coroner left after examining the body and crime scene for 10 minutes. John Bonet's body was removed by Pat Dunn of the Boulder County Coroner's Office pursuant to the warrant. The body was transported to Boulder Community Hospital. The following morning, a post-mortem examination was conducted by Dr. Meyer. 10.45 p.m., Sergeant Larry Mason stepped outside and made an official statement to the only two local print reporters at the scene. 11.44 p.m., according to the Schiller book, Detective Linda Arndt was the last person to leave the house. Okay, so that was the timeline of that day, and... There's a lot of bizarre, bizarre little details that aren't gone over. And we will continue going over them in the next episode as there's plenty, plenty more as well as the logistics and layout of the house and much more evidence that hasn't been talked about, which we will be getting into. So what are your thoughts so far, Maxwell? There's a lot going on here. <laughs> Johnny? I just, uh can't believe there's not any other information out right now about what, what could like how it could have possibly been done or who did it like well, there is i mean they're still going off of like it could have been patsy or burke but yeah. there's like no proof really like that really proves anything it's yeah i mean we're gonna like, be going we're gonna be going down all the avenues besides like her writing the letter like it matched her handwriting supposedly but other then like why would she do that? that like was it just to like you know, if she so thought, her son didn't, like, well, if she trouble. really thought Burke did it. Now, yeah. what if what if John Andrew was there, their other son, and he did it, or they thought oh he God. did it, but they weren't sure? <laughs> supposedly but he, he was in college. There, he was in college. He's the college Sup age. Supposedly he wasn't there, correct? Wasn't and there, but that's his in, age, right? And he flew in later that day. Yeah, he was okay. 20. He's 20. Yeah. Like, what? Dr. Seuss books and duvets? <laughs> <laughs> Unless someone else was just using his suitcase that was there in the house. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode of Mind Shock True Crime in the John Binet series. Plenty more episodes to come. If you liked the video, click the like button. Feel free to share it across social media platforms. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. If you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Check the link in the description. Make sure you also like our Facebook page, and you can check us out on Twitter, Reddit, and Patreon. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. We'll see you guys next time.